Good morning and happy Friday, everybody. Welcome into this week's long form interview here on Mining Stock Daily. I am your host, Trevor Hall. This is getting published a few hours before that infamous Jerome Powell speech with the uh, virtual Jackson Hole Symposium. Uh, so whatever happens here in the next few hours, uh, we have no control over. So I have two guests for you. We welcome in two returning guests, actually. First, Bruno Kaiser, formerly of Desjardins, uh, joins us. And we kind of open up this conversation about ESG and mining. This is on the backs of me listening to a recent episode of Dimitri Kofinas' Hidden Forces podcast when he interviewed Mr. James Aiken. Uh, they were talking more along the oil and gas industry. Well, I want to turn that same topic and ask Bruno about the relevancy in mining. So really great conversation with our friend, Mr. Kaiser. We then turn to CEO technician, Mr. Rob Sin, to talk a lot about the sentiment in junior mining. We talk about his thoughts on gold and just a brief kind of thoughts on what the Jackson Hole Symposium might bring for investors and if we'll get any clarification of what the Fed is planning on doing. Special thanks to our sponsors, Integra Resources, Western Copper and Gold, Corvus Gold, and Rio 2. We certainly appreciate your continued support of the podcast. Let's jump into my conversation, my first conversation with Bruno, and then we'll take a short break and be back with Rob. Take care, everybody. Be well. Uh, it's a real pleasure that we get to welcome this guy back into uh, the show every now and then, bringing him out of retirement back into the mining business uh, every once in a while. Uh, in a recent former life, he was with Desjardins as the head of mining and metals, and now uh, he's, uh, I don't know, he's jack of all trades, I guess. Uh, Mr. Bruno Kaiser. Bruno, welcome back. Thank you very much for the welcome. Uh, we've kind of got a big landscape of conversation that I have presented to you that I think is worth of discussion uh, today. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about ESG here in a little bit because this is an ongoing conversation that has really, uh, the lid came off here at some, some other content that I've been consuming and I really wanted to poise some of those ideas to you, Bruno. Uh, but first, uh, you know, I got to ask you a little bit about Canadian politics. Uh, mm -hmm. most of our listeners here on the podcast are from the United States. We do have a healthy contingent of listeners that obviously come from Canada. So I'm sorry if uh, this is going to bore that audience, but for a lot of us in the United States, uh, obviously across the border, we, you know, we need a little rundown of what's happening. Uh, I am not privy enough to really full understand of what's happening in Canadian politics, but I do know there's an election taking place and Justin yeah. Trudeau is looking to be reelected. Uh, give us this rundown here, Bruno. So, uh, so the election takes place on September 20th. Um, unlike in the U S where the, the election is on a fixed day every four years in Canada, the uh, government can call an election at its, uh, at its leisure, uh, which is, um, you know, Troubling, let's say, at times, because they're obviously going to call it when it's most uh, beneficial to them. 
Um, so th what's going on in Canada uh, is that the currently the government is a minority government um, run by the Liberal Party and the Prime Minister's Pierre, uh, Pierre Trudeau, excuse me, Justin Trudeau. <laughs> uh, a minority government means that they uh, hold the most seats, but um, the uh, total number of seats they hold in Parliament, i.e. the uh, lower house or the equivalent of House of Congress or the uh, House, of, House of Representatives, is uh, less than the total of the other two parties. So in theory, the government can be brought down at any point in time if all the other uh, parties um, uh, vote against the government in, uh, in a vote of non-confidence. That hasn't happened so far because they have to strike bargains with, uh, with the other parties, and they do so typically with the other more far-left party, the NDP. Um, so they've called this election, and it's a very uh, interesting tie-in to your ESG topic that we'd like to talk about, because what's happened under the Trudeau uh, Liberals is they have taken a dramatic turn to the left from what the Liberal Party typically is, which is a center-left party, um, and they've added a tremendous amount more of environmental legislation, consultation with um, Indigenous groups, um, and they've basically done their best, if not have put a stake into the heart of the oil industry. So there's a lot at, uh, at play here uh, with respect to natural resources. The Canadian economy is still very much a natural resource-based economy, so why they would do their best to try and kill it is beyond me. But, um, you know, the fight for global warming and all, all of that, even though Canada's contribution to carbon emissions is less than 1%, I believe. Um, so that's that's what's at play here. Uh, you know, the the theoretical uh, alternative or most likely alternative to a liberal party uh, win would be a conservative party win. The this iteration of conservatives is sort of barely center type conservatives. So they might be more viewed to be what liberals used to be. So there's no real conservative slash right wing or fiscally right wing party available uh, in this election, unfortunately. Um, so it's sort of a least bad outcome if they get elected. Uh, perspective, and I'm speaking now from the perspective of of economics. Uh, to put it in context, uh, the, I know these numbers are small compared to the U.S. Uh, fiscal numbers, but the Canadian budget deficit, when we had budget deficits, would be you know a big one would be 30 billion. Um, they went inexplicably, they went over a year and a half without tabling a budget because of coronavirus, of course. And uh, and the budget deficit ballooned to over 400 billion. Now, we don't have a reserve currency to sort of print our way out of it without true devaluation of the currency. And so the only thing that's going to be an outcome of all of that is mass, much, much higher taxes, which they'll probably extract from the resource industry and, of course, personal income taxes. So it, it is a very big tie into what uh, what is... Um, the theme of ESG. Yeah, uh, I, I'm really looking forward to opening up this dialogue. But I, I have to ask, what is the strategy of calling an election now? Why now? I guess they feel, uh, you know, the the coronavirus is, uh, you know, at the time they called it was under control, so maybe it's not as big a fear under on people's minds. Um, the uh, the conservative party, which is you know the most you know the strongest of the opposition parties, is is has a weak leader. Um, you know who knows, right? Hmm. What what they what they are figuring they're strong in the polls and so hit it while it's hot. But you know that's it doesn't always work out. That's for sure. 
Mm, yes. Uh, thunder in the background. A yeah. Nice little thunderstorm coming through Ontario there. Uh, okay. So I, I've got to open up this question here regarding ESG. Um, and Bruno, I, I think you're just such a great person to have this conversation with because of your vast experience, uh, not only with being an analyst and, and seeing so many projects, but really having an understanding of uh, the politics behind all of this. I had recently, I want to give kudos out to somebody, Dimitri Kafinas from Hidden Forces podcast that had a great conversation this week that really opened up an ESG discussion regarding fossil fuels in the oil and gas industry. And so I, you know, I kind of want to ride that, that those tailcoats there a little bit or coattails, excuse me, um, and have this discussion more on this, on the mining side. But we first have to try to define ESG. And from what I'm seeing is ESG is a thousand miles wide and definitions are hardly even close to being in succinct with whomever you talk to. Obviously, we get the the virtuous portions of it. But really, we have yet to dis- figure out exactly what ESG means. Um, from where you sit, Bruno, are we making any progress to a definition of ESG? Uh, by no means. Um, you know, as, as you said, the, the, the term itself, um, is, is obviously, you know, signals very positive things. I don't think that anybody would be overtly against anything bad, uh, in terms of governance, uh, you know, social construct or, or the societies around in this context, mining, uh, and certainly not the least of which the environment, but, um, but what exactly are the standards? There are no unified standards, right? I mean, there have always been local environmental laws for permitting. Um, and, and part of permitting has always had, uh, the need for a local buy-in, i.e. say community buy-ins. Um, that's, that is a very particular, uh, issue with respect to mining because you kind of have to have a social license. <clears throat> governance is maybe the widest, um, definition of what is, what constitutes good governance, right? Um, because you can stick to the letter of the law. There's already in most Western countries, strong definition of what, what consists of good governance in a, uh, in, uh, in corporations, um, everything from financial governance and, you know, anti, anti-fraud and bribery and, and such to, you know, how one controls a board. And typically these days, the governance means more, uh, the sort of making little air quotes equity. Do we have enough, uh, you know, diversity amongst, uh, you know, men and women and, and various races reflected in the company and in, um, you know, stakeholders in the company. So, What's the right answer there? Who knows, right? Um, that's a sort of constructed outcome as opposed to what true diversity and governance might what might mean. Um, as it reflects, it's it's a, it's an interesting thing, and I think we've I've mentioned this before on your on your podcast. Um, there's this interesting trade-off uh, with respect to the environment part, and I, and I guess the 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 E and the S part of ESG with respect to mining, and as it affects, uh, you know, particularly global warming or, or, or concerns of global warming, which is that the more you move away from hydrocarbons, the more you move towards mining. There's no in-between, 
right? Even if even if your in-between stage you think is solar or wind, those are mining dependent in the sense that they need batteries and they obviously need product to create the solar panels and the wind turbines. And then um, the extra copper required in wiring everything up. So to the extent that ESG slows down or inhibits or red tapes new investment in mining, it all it will then also slow down uh, the progress made to switching away from hydrocarbons, which is something that you don't often hear, but is very much a fact. I can tell you from my experience in the banking industry, basically every bank now has an ESG panel or component to it when it considers credit. And that's not just for mm. resources. That's for every every loan that goes out. There's an ESG checklist of things. And, you know, if it's a natural resource uh, credit, it's a long checklist. Um, but the, to, to, to the credit of the mining industry, what, what it has done, and I would say, let's say, define this as uh, European and North American mining companies in particular, they've long ago realized that you can't operate a mine in an environment where the people are against you. Um, now, sometimes that is artificially disrupted. You know, you get agitators coming in, but, but for the most part, a mine gets built and permitted. Uh, with the blessing of, of local people because they're the people that are going to be working there um, and they have to live near the mines. And so getting their buy-in is critical to, you know, remaining open and then hopefully, um, you know, having those mines last for as long a period of time as possible. Um, so that, that social environmental part has always, in my experience, even long before ESG became a, a, a discussion topic, it's actually been legitimately a concern for mining companies. Um, whether it's a, a, a U.S. or Canadian company operating in Mexico or Peru or Chile or Canada or U.S., it, it doesn't particularly matter. Um, do accidents happen and do bad, bad actors uh, come across? Yes, but it's pretty hard um, when you have to go through the permitting process and get local buy-in. I, I do want to take a step back in state and, uh, you know, I, I don't want to speak for you, Bruno, but I just want to make everybody clear who's listening to this podcast that um, I am neither for or against ESG in this discussion. I obviously have my own opinions. Um, and But whatever that end game is to establishing what those ESG uh, mandates might be, there's a lot of incomplete, there's a lot of incompleteness on how to get there. And so in the, in whatever path we take is going to have challenges and consequences. And I just want to make sure that people listening to this podcast start to understand what those challenges could or will be and what those consequences could or will be. And you talked about credit and I know you coming from an investment banking uh, career. When we talk about raising capital or providing credit to mining companies and, and having these big institutions, having these ESG panels, which they need to make sure all the boxes are checked in order to provide that liquidity to those companies. Is that going to become more difficult for mining and hard rock extraction to get finance because those check those boxes are going to be harder to check. Um, I'd say generically speaking, yes, um, and it has been because it's th those those uh, ESG uh, gates have been there now for a couple of years, and it's it's ubiquitous. Like every bank has it, as far as I can tell. 
Um, I don't know about some of the private, i.e. non-bank lending institutions, but I imagine they as well do, because what they have to do is get their funding typically from um, large private equity investors or private investors, say, uh, endowment funds, university endowment funds. And those fund contributors all have ESG checklists as well. So the, 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 the confusion is, as you mentioned, there is no standard like what constitutes good ESG, right? So each bank the, the lists may look similar and they may rhyme, but they may not be identical. So uh, as you go to solve the check mark for one bank, have you done it for another? Because it's not typical that a, 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 um, a company looking for credit, you know, hangs their hat all in one area. They're looking at it from multiple parties in order to get, you know, the best terms possible. So in doing so, you have to satisfy the demands of many different parties in terms of what they all feel is good ESG. And on over and above that, of course, then you have the 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 permitting, right? Um, and and local uh, local ESG mandates for wherever wherever the mine might be. So there's multiple levels of it, and it's not as I said, they rhyme, but they're not the same. Yeah, uh, and we haven't even talked about the federal uh, overhang of this all, and really what federal law, whether it be in Canada or the United yeah. States. When it comes to mandating some sort of whatever that defined ESG uh, ruling rule must be for mining, um, is there potential that the overhead of federal uh, federal oversight when it comes to ESG and, and natural resource extraction and the mining side could potentially add? <laughs> even more hindrance to getting projects online because say they maybe decide to tax more to those tax, those companies more that do not meet those fully renewable net zero carbon type of, uh, you know, type of mandates. Um, I'd say that's absolutely the case. Uh, no matter how innocuous the, uh, the filter is that companies will have put in front of them, it all results in either time or money. And, I don't mean to be cute about the expression that time is money, but especially it is in mining, where if you're looking for a project to get developed, uh, the longer it takes, uh, the more you um, the more you decrease the net present value of the project, right? Um, right. So there there have been some changes, for example, in Canada by this current government that have made it more difficult uh, to get permits because of the required uh, consultation with First Nations, uh, Indigenous people, Natives, um, whatever, you know, there's different terminologies depending on where your audience is. But that, um, that of course, uh, can radically change both the time and the cost because oftentimes in order to get buy-in from these groups, there is a tangible cost and it certainly makes it take a lot longer. And then the uncertainty therein causes uh, stress on equity values, which, um, you know, makes it that much harder to raise that capital that you need. So it's a vicious cycle. And I'm not, I'm not downplaying the need for ESG, but to your point, um, what is the good standard everywhere when everyone has a different standard? It makes it very confusing. And then on, the, on top of that, the, the change on a dime uh, nature of it is very challenging. One thing I read recently, which is uh, very interesting, is that rather than uh, having companies comply with standards that, uh, let's just say, they're, they're best practice type things, 
<clears throat> it, it would be um, best practice to actually use the stick instead of the carrot to actually quote the fund manager. It was a uh, ESG, former ESG fund manager for BlackRock. Um, and he said that by his account, um, you know, different, different uh, notions of ESG uh, enticement are not as helpful as actual penalties. Um, uh, and that, you know, you and I were talking earlier about uh, a, a recent law that's been uh, enacted or passed in Germany where companies currently above 3,000 employees and then in future, I think as of 2024, 1,000 employees will have to actually due diligence their supply chains to make sure that their supply chains are ESG compliant. And if they're not, then they face fines of up to 2% of, of revenue, which is big, right? So right. that's, right. you know, that all of that is, uh, it's not going away, right? So it all adds to cost. Um, I would say if you really want to sort of trickle it down to the economics, what it should do is add to the, to the price of, of, of uh, product of whatever material or mineral um, we're, we're talking about because it'll slow down supply. Yeah, uh, let, let's do talk about that new law out of Germany. Uh, it is called the Supply Chain Due Diligence Act. It was uh, passed in, I believe it was July, out of Germany. Um, the, the parliament approved a draft bill, and then uh, the German Federal Council approved it without any changes. Um, it, the purpose of that, they say, is to intend to protect human rights and to ensure a sustainable production and under the supply chain due diligence act companies are obliged to identify and assess human rights and environmental risks and to establish an adequate and effective risk management system I, it, this is pretty this is pretty big i fe- i really feel bruno like this is one step out of a pretty industrious country that could trickle down into the likes of the United States, Canada, and the rest of the EU. Where I think it really faults is really understanding just how currently the supply chain works from mine to finished product and how much hands those raw materials actually (laughs) change in going from point A to point B. Uh, But this doesn't feel like this is going to stop here, does it? No, it won't. I mean, it's... uh... It's one of these things like many, you know, um, laws and regulations, they, they pile up, they don't, they never go backwards. Right. Um, so currently the way it works, say for example, and you know, people typically cite Congo because Congo is one of the major rich sources of some very key, um, metals that are in some cases very tight in supply. Or, or are predominantly produced in Congo, say like cobalt, for example. <clears throat> and cobalt is obviously uh, currently a very key ingredient in batteries, and that brings it right back to the whole environmental tie-in, right? So right now, when there is metal produced in Congo, it kind of goes through an unofficial blockchain type, um, uh, type process, whereby the metal is signed off uh, and signed off on dispatch and signed off on receipt at every different step along the way. And so at the end of the day, if a battery manufacturer in Germany or Panasonic or somebody, um, you know, takes, takes hold of it, they've got, you know, a three foot pile of papers that have followed that batch of metal all the way. Now, is that open to corruption and falsification? Yes, it is. Um, um, 
but you know, what's the, is, is it worth it? That's simply a function of uh, the value of the, of the material that we're talking about. And this may all increase the value of it. So um, we all know that corruption is rife where there is a, a point to it. And this, this can simply lead to that at the end of the day. And it's going to make, it's going to make the cost of procurement higher period. Mm -hmm. Yeah. On the, on the, on the other side of this, Bruno, could it also help shine some light on where a lot of our raw materials are produced in? Could it say, listen, in some of these undeveloped countries, like you listed the Congo there as a jurisdiction, um, in for as much issues as there's always been out of that country, in certain areas of the country, could it shine some light saying, listen, we as a company need to find this material. And obviously we are being hit by having it supplied from here, but we know say the United States or Canada has the ability to produce just as good of product here. And, but we need to make a better push with our federal agencies to get mines permitted so we can actually source it here is there i mean is there a silver lining somewhere in here i guess is what i'm asking that, that, that would be a very silver lining um you know if once again if governments would be and i'm going to use progressive in a different context progressive enough to provide you know i'm not suggesting permits and processes be done away with but you know if they have prescriptive timelines so that companies know exactly how long it will take and that they stick to it and that the measuring sticks don't move um you know, I think uh, if a project works and if it's deemed to be environmentally sound, then it should go ahead. But you know, <laughs> there's no end of there's no end of roadblocks that get put up. And I think that that would be a more it'd be a more trustworthy alternative than to say that we would do away with the type of very very bad situations you find in countries like Congo and and others where there are um, very negative uh, negative things going on with respect to labor environmental controls. I mean, I've seen some of it. It's horrible. Um, you know, I've seen people um, <clears throat> picking, uh, you know, very high-grade mineral um, uh, chunks out of riverbeds in Congo. And, you know, there are kids there that are, you know, literally just have a loincloth and they're, that's what they're doing, you know, and that gets then passed into the local smelter. How is that all accounted for and tracked to be determined? But, you know, you're not going to see that in in North America, right? Right. All right. What else about this whole conversation? You know, is there anything that I've neglected to ask you, Bruno, that you think is really important for investors and speculators in in mining and mining equities to really keep an eye out when it comes to ESG? I would say, listen, uh, I think everybody, as I said, is in favor of good governance, environmental protection, and, and social conscience. Um, it would behoove investors to make those decisions on their on their own, as opposed to say investing in ESG funds. Because if you look at things from the from the inverse, which is to say that you know it's it's obviously important for companies to maintain good ESG policies, but maintaining a good ESG policy doesn't make a good company, right? Um, and and in, investing by looking at it solely through the lens of ESG can um, misidentify uh, appropriate invest investment opportunities. Um, and I think that, you know, it, it, quite perversely, a lot of mining companies, if not all mining companies, don't make the grade for being in ESG funds, notwithstanding that they, uh, 
that they are themselves the providers of the raw materials to make for a better environment. Um, so I think that at the end of the day, it's all actually turns out to be a very strong positive, but but mostly from from the perspective of the impact on metal prices. A uh, personal question for you, if you don't mind me asking, uh, now that you're retired and spent a few months out of the office, uh, do you miss it yet? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would say answer to that would be no. <laughs> I miss uh, I miss the people in the industry and such, but uh, the stresses of uh, of uh, of the you know the daily grind is not missed. Yeah, yeah, uh, but you obviously are still following. Oh, I'm very close to. Um, I still have a close relationship with Desjardins. Um, there is um, um, something that we're trying to work out with a uh, an advisory role, um, and uh, I keep strong connections into everyone in the industry and I keep tabs on what's going on. Uh, well, you are an incredible advisor to me and also incredible source of information to the listeners of this podcast, Bruno. So I really appreciate all the time you do give us, uh, even when you get to pull you out of retirement from time to time. Always a pleasure. All right. Uh, that's Bruno Kaiser, everybody. A great conversation about ESG. We're going to take a real short break and we will be back with Rob Sin, CEO Technician, with our second segment of the episode. back here with another in-depth interview with a returning guest that is mr robert sin ceo technician himself joining us from the lovely beaches of florida hey rob how are you i'm doing great trevor how are you yeah it's good it's good to be in florida at this uh you know at this time i feel blessed that, that i live in a a free state in a free country <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, absolutely. However, I will take the uh, summertime mountains over the uh, humidity of the beach any day. Just my you, personal. You got you got <laughs> that right, and that's why I'm flying to Colorado in two weeks. Yes, absolutely. Uh, we'll get you acclimated. Uh, you know, before we uh, we really uh, jump ahead here on Beaver Creek news. You know, it's, it'll be interesting to see what happens. It sounds like a lot of. Uh, Canadian companies are deciding to go virtual to the conference just on the uh, concerns of having to quarantine on the way back. And obviously, uh, family uh, of a top priority to those individuals and also other work obligations up there in Canada. So we'll see how it continues. Uh, Beaver Creek is still a go. Uh, it just maybe not as bustling as we hoped it once would be. But mm -hmm. a lot of things are out of our control, isn't it? For sure. Uh Rob, we got a lot to talk about here, and it's a conversation yeah, I've been looking forward to having for quite some time. Um, we're going to talk about the junior mining market here momentarily, but first we have got to kind of set some tone here with the uh, Jackson Hole Symposium. Uh, I had mentioned to Matt Geiger earlier this week the Fed has 5,000 reasons why it should not taper and one why it should it sounds like their hand might be forced here, but what are you looking at uh, here as we approach that uh, that big Jackson Hole meeting? Yeah, Trevor, I think it's an interesting 
topic and I analyze it from a trader standpoint. If, if Powell's a trader, which I think he is, um, you got to think about the risk of making the wrong move here. You, 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 know, you want to make the move that has the least downside. And I think that move, I mean, if he were to say in a speech tomorrow morning, we've decided we're going to taper next month. And here's that would be a shock to the market. That'd be a surprise. It'd be faster than anybody expected, um, and that would be a downside shock. That would not be good, and that's probably not what's going to happen. The same way if he went out there and said, "Actually, we're done with any thought of tapering. We're just going to keep doing this forever." That would also be crazy and probably be very inflationary for all kinds of things. So he's got to try to like thread the needle. And I think it's going to be something like um, talking about the risks to the economic outlook to really get clear to the markets and, and to, you know, all Americans that it's not all, you know, sunshine and rainbows out there. There are some t challenges, some structural challenges to the economic outlook. Um, and the inflation risks, you know, he's he's been steady with the transitory word. I wouldn't be surprised if he used it again. Maybe he's going to be uh, use a slightly, uh, you know, different language. But he's going to he's going to stress that the Fed really doesn't see inflation as the main threat here. It's not the main problem in the economy. And the Fed has not met its full employment uh, goal, its mandate. It might be a lot closer, certainly a lot closer than it was a year ago, but it's not it's not there yet. And the inflation data, when you look at it in its entirety, is not so much of an overshoot that the Fed has to hit the panic button. In fact, in the last, let's say, four to six weeks, we've gotten some data showing that inflation is moderating a lot. And then... We have this this Delta variant, the exploding case numbers. I mean, I'm in Florida. The, the case numbers are just, you know, they're mind-boggling. They're massive numbers. I'm not sure what they really mean in the grand scheme, grand scheme of things because it's, it's clear that we've learned how to deal with COVID very well at this point. Um, but obviously, it affects people's psychology. People have more anxiety about gathering in groups. Attendance for sporting events is way down. Going to the you know cinema, hugely down. I mean, the, those companies are on life support, um, and I could go on and on. The dining, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So, so the, the economy has all these challenges, and I think that Powell's going to spend a good part of his speech outlining the challenges he sees, and why for now the Fed will stay the course. But there is a possibility of a taper in the relatively near future. And to me, I think that probably means Q1 of next year. All right. So uh, that's a lot sooner than, say, Q4 of next year, which is kind of where things were had been expecting a couple months ago. Uh, a couple different scenarios, you know, kind of playing out in my mind here, Rob. You know, if he lays out a groundwork for tapering, say, in the next quarter or two or even into q1 as you kind of think 
What does that mean for the liquidity into the system? They have certainly propped up these markets as best as they can. I mean, the sell-off a year and a half ago was very painful, but it was quick and rebounded rather quickly. Uh, If they pull liquidity out of the system that is that elastic liquidity that they have provided to markets, do you think that the investors begin to start tapering themselves and pulling them pulling out their positions uh, from these very uh, overvalued uh, uh, prices here that we're seeing in certain equities? I mean, that's a million dollar question. It's a billion dollar question. Uh, I don't know the answer to that, but just from my experience in in financial markets, as long as prices are going up, people are going to be on board the train uh, wanting to be part of the party. I mean, like that's the psychology. So until there's more than one event um, that substantially alters the investor psychology to be more averse to taking risk, then I, I don't see much changing. And you can talk about valuation till you're blue in the face and pull out uh, the, you know, Graham and Dot, you know, handbook on, on valuation. And 95% of investors today will just ignore you and laugh at you and, and just say, you don't know what you're, you're talking about, right? It's different this time. It's, you know, you don't understand innovation. You know, you don't understand technology. You know, you don't understand Pokemon cards. You don't understand Come Rocket Coin, right? So, so there's no like, there's no point in making sense in it. It's just, it is what it is. Um, sure, there's a lot of things that point to a bubble out there today, but uh, until that bubble is popped, until that investor psychology shifts in a substantial way, then the party keeps going. And I think a lot of people, a lot of investors, some guys that I talk to who who run some pretty big money tell me, you know, we just, we try not to be, um, we, we, we try to let our winners run, you know, essentially like, even though the valuation is, is past, our price objective we've decided that we're not smart enough to actually know what the value should be all we know is we bought at a good price and we're not going to say that just because it's 10 percent above our price objective that we should have to sell it you know and i think that's worked that like that sort of strategy has worked very well in this market because as you said things are going to overvaluations yeah let your winners run unfortunately we haven't seen much of that in the junior mining sector as of lately this summer uh but we are gonna we're gonna talk about that the the last thing i want to ask you and get your thoughts on here rob uh this is a topic regarding the the federal reserve and this is something i'm going to be paying attention to to see if it comes up in his uh, speech, is this kind of move of the Federal Reserve supporting solutions for climate change and equity. This has obviously been a larger part of the Fed's stance. Uh, Maybe they're being strong-armed into this. It's not part of their mandate, but definitely we're hearing more about it in certain speeches. Does this have any implications for how you are approaching, you know, news and updates from the Federal Reserve on how you're investing? Um, I really know. 
Um, in the grand scheme of things, no, the Fed doesn't really enter my calculus very much. I will say that this morning I exited some trades I was in, some shorter-term trades, just so I have more cash available for Friday morning in case there is a, a good trading opportunity following you know, his speech. But generally speaking, in terms of portfolio management, longer-term stuff, the Fed doesn't really enter into my analysis. I'm, I'm focused on uh, more micro factors in, in certain companies and much longer term bull market view of the gold uh, and, you know, metals, you know, sector overall. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the short term, obviously, you know, his speech is going to be market moving. Most likely it could be it could be hugely market moving or it could be kind of a Oh well, we knew this was coming. It's it's not really much different than than what we thought. Um, so it it obviously if you you're long a bunch of stuff heading into that speech, you have more exposure to what he says. So I just basically raised a little bit of cash, so I had a little bit more flexibility going in uh, Friday morning. Okay, uh, you mentioned gold. Let's talk about gold in this. Uh you know, it's kind of been in this range here. It almost seems like it is waiting for Friday morning to see what happens and see what the response will be. Uh, what's your thoughts here on uh, on the yellow metal? Uh, it seems like it's just kind of hanging in there right now. Obviously, we bounced up off those that big dump the other week, but uh, not much movement since then. Yeah, I mean, actually, I think that gold is trading at about as well as one could expect, quite frankly. You know, we, we, you know, we had that flush, that washout down to 1677 a few weeks ago on the Sunday night. And I think that really served to clear the decks. And, you know, we had, sent, we had a sentiment washout, too, with the daily sentiment index down to eight at one point. And anytime we get that single digits on the daily sentiment index, it's a pretty damn good sign that you know, um, we're probably going to see a bounce. So, so we've gotten the bounce. And if this was really a weak bear market, we would expect gold to have rolled over already. Usually those dead cat bounces only last for a few days or a week. Uh, so gold is, you know, this is three weeks now into the bounce. We're holding up here near 1800. Um, and it's, it's a bullish, uh, it, it's a bullish setup really because sentiment is still skeptical of gold, yet gold price action is not bearish. I'm not saying the price action is bullish per se, but it's not bearish price action. We're not seeing you know, lower highs, lower lows rolling over since that washout of three weeks ago. Um, so actually, it, I think gold could be set for an upside move here uh, in the next couple of weeks. Obviously, you know, it depends a lot on Powell Friday morning, but uh, I could see us going up to 1840 to 1850 area by early September. Hmm. Uh, you know, I was going to ask you for a price target, so I mean, there it is. Uh, you know, there has been some pretty interesting intraday volatility here in the last couple of weeks. Obviously, we're recording this Thursday morning. I mean, gold got as low as. 1781 but as we're talking has rebounded and trying to push up more closer to that $1800 level where it was rejected as well. Uh it you know given all this intraday trading here it does seem like there is some accumulation happening. Uh but what is it going to take to get 
that next move to get the, you know, the average Joe retail person investing back into the yellow metal? Well, uh, I, I will. I, I would generally say the average Joe doesn't matter to the price of gold. Um, I think the gold market is moved by by you know large institutions and you know hedge funds, uh, especially in the futures realm. I think at, there are plenty of average Joes who have gotten uh, who have an understanding of the value of gold as a long term investment and have been buying the you know physical gold and silver in the past few years. Um, if, if we want to switch to junior mining, um, I, I'm more interested in the question, what will it take to bring the retail investor back or even to junior mining, period? And that's a very difficult one for me to answer. I think that you know something that we chatted about prior to going on the show was the junior mining sector raised so much money in the last year. I mean, I, I don't recall what the numbers are in total, but I know it's in the billions of dollars. And that's a lot of money. And that money is, is generally uh, set to be spent for, you know, you know, exploration, for, you know, drilling, for doing work that generates, you know, new discoveries. And maybe it's too early because, you know, we're only you know, it's only August still. Maybe we still have to wait a few more months. But generally speaking, I have not been impressed by the results that we've gotten from the sector. Yes, there have been some good, you know, um, diamonds in the rough, um, you know, out there. But broadly speaking, I have been unimpressed um, by the, the quality of the the you know news flow. I was hoping for for more from many different companies, and and I think maybe it's just we had that I had and many people had high expectations in terms of the timing of the news flow. What we're seeing out there is COVID is wreaking havoc on uh, you know supply chains. It's causing labor shortages and just generally making things more difficult to get done and, and t taking longer. Uh, the assay labs, and again, it's another mess, you know, this year, I feel like it's the same thing every year, but this year it's, it's, it's pretty bad because you have so many companies sending in core samples more than there's been in 10 years. And these, these labs are operating with lower staff due to COVID. So, oh, it's a, it's a perfect storm for frustration, you know? Yeah. And I think that to, to bring, so to, sort of get back to the question to bring in new investors good results i mean it's as simple as that like people want to see new discoveries they want to see wealth being formed they they want exciting stories and hopefully those stories are based upon real fundamentals and you know new discoveries of gold or copper or silver or you know what have you and so we need to see that like we need something to get excited about and, and cause those those charts of those companies that are making those you know new discoveries go from the bottom left to the upper right and and get in all the technical traders and everything right 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 you know there was there was a just an incredible amount of cash being raised last year uh, I remember a few weeks back I interviewed Rick rule and we talked about this and he was adamant that that capital raising time frame was way overdone but since then I've kind of posed this question uh, in my own kind of 
due diligence here, and, I, and I'd like to hit this theme a, a little bit more in this full episode here on Mining Stock Daily, Rob. And that's the question of discipline. Uh, and and not, I don't want to talk about discipline with specific companies, but just discipline around in general with the sector. Uh, given that we had a hot 2020, uh, metals prices were flying high, financings were, were raised uh, an incredible amount. Do we lack the discipline to really continue to add shareholder value when the shareholders were so willing to provide that capital to them? And, and, and what does discipline look like, I suppose, given all the faults and mishaps that are, has really plagued this industry for so long yeah i mean that's a good that's a good question i mean the the sad truth about the junior mining sector is that it's largely a macro trade so you know regardless of the 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 fundamentals of the individual companies generally their share prices are going to rise and fall largely just based upon fund flows into the gold and silver sector um so it's it's kind of sad but it's almost like uh the good management teams aren't you know necessarily um you know valued higher than the bad ones it's just sort of all this one big macro trade now that being said there are exceptions to every rule and there are some exceptional companies in the junior mining sector that and their their share price and valuation is generally higher than their peer group um but i think that you know uh, a lot of companies the 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 sector is cyclical, right? And yeah. so are the companies and how they raise and spend money. When there's more money in the till, they're more likely to take a trip to that conference. They're more likely to spend a little more on marketing. They're more likely to spend more out in the field, et cetera, et cetera. And it's the companies that the CEO really cares deeply and pays attention to the details that makes the shareholder dollars go that much farther. Um, and I would say that's the minority in, in the junior mining sector. Most CEOs and management teams in the sector do not necessarily view the shareholder treasury as, as theirs, like they would use their own you know, savings account. Right. And so and, that, and that's something that's important for investors to realize. I'm not I'm not saying they're crooks. I'm not saying there's wrongdoing. It's just a, a psychology and a way of of of, of acting, of, a way of managing. And so when, you know, shareholders and investors in the sector talk to management teams, I think it is important to ask some questions about shareholder value and how they manage shareholder funds and, and where the money is going to and see how they answer those questions. I think that will tell you a lot about um, them. Yeah, I, given that it's been such a just a very weak and difficult junior market here this summer as we approach the end of it, the summer doldrums, I, I certainly hope here, Rob. Um, discoveries good good drilling results uh acquisitions have been rewarded on specific company news uh so it obviously appears 
people are still paying attention. However, the volatility is in general is enough to, for it seems to be capitulation for the most part, selling off, raising funds in preparation of buying something cheaper. Um, but it does seem like people are continuing to watch and just waiting to deploy. Given that we are towards the end of the summer here, do you feel that there's been so much sell-off here in the junior mining in junior mining industry that we could be poised for a bounce as the seasonality changes? Well, the sad truth is the seasonality is supposed to actually change for the negative in about three weeks. <laughs> so <laughs> we've just gone through or we're like we're in the midst of what's a seasonable favorable time of the year for the sector so maybe we can throw seasonality out the window this year okay. you know it, it's it's not a perfect tool it, it works maybe two out of three times and uh not and not every time but um yeah i mean i i think that what is gonna be the main driver for the, the trade in precious metals and junior mining over the rest of this year is, is probably just simply going to be Fed monetary policy. So is the Fed going to tighten stronger and faster than market expects? And if so, that's going to be very negative for precious metals and junior mining stocks. If the Fed is going to stay fairly accommodative and really let this play out, make sure that they've achieved that it's achieved its dual mandate the objective of all this money all these extraordinary policy actions since early 2020 they're going to make sure that they achieve their goal you know before spiking the ball in the end zone then i think we have a favorable environment for a rally in precious metals and junior mining stocks so my view is the odds, and maybe the odds are 60-40, maybe they're 70-30, the odds favor being long here in junior mining, uh, at least for the next several months. Uh, that doesn't mean it's definitely going to happen, because <laughs> obviously there could be all sorts of unforeseen things that come about, and the Fed could say, you know what, we've actually think we've achieved our goal, and, and we're worried about inflation, so we're going to really tighten things up here. And gold is a monetary metal, and tightening monetary policy uh, would be good for the currency and not the currency alternative. We'll leave it at that, Rob. Uh, I look forward to seeing you here in a couple weeks. Uh, as soon as we get off this recording, you and I are going to figure out which night in Beaver Creek we're having a meal together, and then we can talk other things like sports and Sounds NFL. good. <laughs> Sounds good. Because football, football season, season is, is upon us. Here. Yes, yes. 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 Uh, uh, my my Cornhuskers are back in action this Saturday. Uh, so, uh, are they going to be good this year? Or is this going to be another bad year? Well, of course, I'm an eternal optimist when it comes to the Big Red Rob. So, yeah, 500. How about that? <laughs> All right, 500. There we go. That's the goal. All right, buddy. We'll see you here in a couple weeks. All right, Trevor. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Mining Stock Daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decision.